Last week, uh, Emily and I were on holiday. We had a lovely time. We booked this little cottage by the sea, intent on getting away from all the worries of life and just reconnecting with one another. The cottage had no internet, no TV, just a fireplace to sit around and talk. It was great, just what we needed. Now, it's amazing how out of touch you can get in just one week away from the news. You can imagine our surprise as we sat on the ferry on the way home and hooked up to the CalMac Wi-Fi and we discovered that we got a new Prime Minister. A new Prime Minister! What? We'd only been away a week. The last Prime Minister took months to appoint and she'd only been in place six weeks. How on earth could we have a new Prime Minister already? Emily and I looked at each other and we wondered what else had changed during our time away. I mean, a new Prime Minister in a week? Now there was something interesting that came out of this rapid change of leader in Downing Street. People cottoned on, perhaps for the first time, that every Prime Minister gets their own personalised lectern to stand at when they're making big speeches to the nation. Did you see this? Every Prime Minister gets a specially carved lectern designed to suit their style and ambitions. Tony Blair had the largest and darkest of the lecterns in the 21st century. He had the government website put at the top. He was rather proud that he was the first Prime Minister when pretty much everyone had the internet. Gordon Brown had a very modern-looking lectern, trying to show that he was going to lead Labour in a new way after Tony Blair's long premiership. That lectern had wheels on it, which was rather fortunate because Brown was off in no time at all. David Cameron had a light, curved structure, apparently designed to look statesmanlike. Theresa Mays was slender and feminine. She was proud to be only the second female Prime Minister. Boris Johnson's was strong and robust, apparently so he could thump it vigorously during his energetic speeches. And then we come to the Liz Truss lectern. Oh, what a work of art it was. A beautiful spiral design shaped to look like a tree. Maybe she wanted to be a green Prime Minister. Maybe she wanted to offer fresh shoots of hope to the poor struggling with their bills. Maybe she wanted to keep all the various branches of the UK firmly in one trunk. Apparently this lectern took three to four weeks to make and cost several thousand pounds of taxpayers' money. I'm sure the carpenter who lovingly sculpted it can barely believe that its usefulness only lasted for about the same length of time that it took for him to make it. And I wonder what happens to this beautiful lectern tree now. Does it get recycled? Does it go to the headmaster of a private school or the pulpit of a local church? Does Liz Trust get to take it home as a memento to the proudest 44 days of her working life? I rather doubt it. Does it go to a museum? Or does it get cut up and turned into something more useful? Who knows? But as I came to this passage in Daniel 4, this image of a lectern in the shape of a tree being discarded from use, 
was a telling one. All political powers come and go. We should not put too much store in them or be overly impressed by them. Because God can cut down a tree and plant a new one in its place in no time at all. And let's hope that that message keeps the new Prime Minister humble because he hasn't even got his own lectern yet. Such has been the rate of change. But even more importantly, let us realise that our passage of Daniel 4 will challenge us to learn the same. We are to remain humble before the Lord. I want to cut straight to the chase today. The message of our passage is really clear. Our God is an awesome, holy God who reigns mightily over all. Those who walk in pride before him will be humbled, but those who humbly look up for his help will be lifted up. Truly, in times of trouble, God lowers the proud and raises the humble. And in this chapter, there is a line that gets repeated three times, word for word. It comes in verse 17, verse 25, and verse 32, and it says this. The Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. What do we learn about God from that verse? After all, that's the most important question to ask whenever we open the Bible and begin to read it. Well, I think we learn some important truths. First of all, our God reigns. He truly reigns over all of his creation. He has the power to direct the destiny of nations, to appoint the rulers that he wishes. He's totally free to act as he pleases. There's no other power, no other God that can hold back his hand, no human being that can coerce his choice. And later in the chapter, the Babylonian king recognises the comparative weakness of his reign compared to the reign of Almighty God when he says, his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? What power, what uncontested authority. God is bigger than any one of us. His plans are bigger than any of our plans. He can wisely fit us into place and bring our waywardness back into line. He has the ability even to use the lowliest of people to shame the strong. Such is his sovereignty. You know, we can never over-describe the magnificence of God's reign or over-exaggerate the extent of its scope He's made all things. He has power over all things. He can step in at any moment and ensure what he wants comes to pass. The Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. 
The second thing that we learn about God from this description is that there is something exclusive about his sovereignty. This chapter is set against the backdrop of the Babylonian court in about 580 BC. Now, the Babylonians, they weren't hard-hearted secularists like many in our world today. They weren't atheists either. Atheism is a fairly new trend because deep down human beings have always known that there must be a god of some sort. The Babylonians were religious pagans. They had a whole host of gods and idols that they, they worshipped and they prayed to. And kings like Nebuchadnezzar believed that the gods raised up men like him to act as their viceroys, to reign over the people on their behalf. Can you see how that one verse completely sabotages the Babylonian worldview? Because recognising the sovereignty of one god is completely incompatible with holding pagan beliefs. It's Israel's God who gives out the crowns, not the idols in the Babylonian temples. Only he can move his people into the right place at the right time, even if they don't acknowledge him at all. And when you hear the words that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes, you know that any other religion or God is false. There can only be one who holds the world in his hands. The Lord of heaven and earth is exclusive. The third thing that we learn from that verse that's very helpful for us today is that if our God reigns and there's no other power or force that can stop his plans coming to be, then in him we find assurance. Twice in this chapter, God's reign is referred to as an eternal kingdom. Verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Verse 34, his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. You see, God's reign is so total, so exclusive, that the true outcome for all life on earth is guaranteed. Yes, there'll be trials on the way and enemies will rise up and dictators like Putin will terrify for a while. But they won't ultimately last. Only the reign of God will endure forever. And if you put your trust in him, you will discover the only true security available in life, even eternal life beyond the grave. The Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Finally, from the content of that one verse, we discover something rather beautiful. It tells us that God can change those who hold power. And in this chapter, we discover one of the key grounds on which he does this. In verse 27, we discover that the heart of Nebuchadnezzar's wickedness for which God will hold him to account is that he has oppressed the needy. He has built his great prosperity on the backs of the vulnerable. And this will never do in the eyes of God. Because alongside all of God's sovereign power, 
is a wonderfully gentle heart. God wants all of his people to be treated kindly. He wants his kingdom to be set apart as a place where justice is done. And as a consequence, he will use his power to humble those who walk in pride and lift up the humble. You see, God's reign is one of love. So four key qualities of God found in one verse. He reigns, he's exclusive, his kingdom is assured, and his power is always held at the service of love. It's appropriate that the first four letters of those words spell out the word real, because that's precisely what Nebuchadnezzar is about to discover about Israel's God. He's very real indeed. In many ways, I've got this sermon back to front. I've started by giving you the moral of the chapter before I've related the story. Let's put that right. The story of this chapter is one of pride being humbled, a powerful man being brought low. But when that man truly repented, God then graciously built him back up again. There is no doubting the pride of Nebuchadnezzar in this story. It begins in verse 4, where we find Nebuchadnezzar at home in his palace. He's contented and he's prosperous. Nebuchadnezzar has everything you could possibly imagine and far more besides. He's got power, he's got wealth, he's got great armies, he's got nations under his control. He's got a fine palace, no doubt he's got lots of beautiful wives. He has it all. And as a result he begins to believe his own hype and he becomes boastful. And in verses 29 and 30, we see the true state of his heart. As the king walked about on the roof of his palace, he said, is not this the great Babylon that I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? See, Nebuchadnezzar is a puffed-up, self-indulgent autocrat. He believes that he's a truly worthy human being. He's worthy of praise and worthy of respect. So much so, he has little regard for those who suffer as a result of his actions. Perhaps worst of all, Nebuchadnezzar remains proud, despite all the things that God has shown him and warned him about. By this point in the story, Nebuchadnezzar has already had enough glimpses of God's power to know that in reality, in the grand scheme of things, he's a much weaker king than he likes to think. The children listed them off well. In chapter 1 of this book, Nebuchadnezzar tried to destroy the Jewish identity of Daniel and his friends. But what happened? God built them up on a diet of water and vegetables and put them in power. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had this fearful dream of a statue being toppled. And Daniel miraculously interpreted this dream for him and said, this is a foretelling of the day when your kingdom will be toppled and smashed to smithereens. And in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar, he throws this fit of temper and he, he casts the three friends into the furnace. And yet even there, God steps in and rescues them personally protecting them from the flames. Nebuchadnezzar has seen so much already and it shows you how proud and how hard-hearted he is 
that he continues to stubbornly reject God and plough his own furrow. Now the time has come for his pride to be humbled once and for all. And what I love about this chapter is that it just emphasises the power of God's reign. God tells Nebuchadnezzar what will happen if he doesn't humble himself by giving him this vivid dream. But Nebuchadnezzar ignores it, so God goes ahead and does exactly what he said he would. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is cut down to size like the felling of a mighty tree. His arrogant boasting is stripped away through the ignominy of him losing his mind and eating grass like a beast of the field. The proverb says that pride comes before a fall. Well, there are a few falls bigger than this. Mighty king to outcast madman. Even Liz Truss's fall from grace looks gentle compared to this one. There is no doubt who is the real king in this story, and it's not Nebuchadnezzar. But do not lose sight of what is really important. Amid this fearful judgment of the sovereign God remains his gentle mercy. When interpreting the dream for him, Daniel holds out to the king an offer of hope. Even as he falls, there will be space for repentance. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, that great tree that represents him, it's savagely cut down. But the root of the tree is then bound with iron and bronze. And these are hard metals. They're designed to act like a shield. They they protect the vulnerable roots so that life one day might flourish again. And the message is clear that on being humbled, if the king turns from evil, and if he acknowledges God, And if he demonstrates integrity in this by being kind to the people he's oppressed, then God will begin to build him back up again. He will raise him from his low estate and even restore some of his prosperity to him. And wonderfully, this is indeed what happens. Arrogant Nebuchadnezzar is cut down, the branches of his pride stripped away. But finally... He turns back to the Lord. Verse 34 says he lifted his eyes to heaven. And on doing so, God kept his word. Nebuchadnezzar would not reign forever. No human king or prime minister does. But he was granted a little more time. And Nebuchadnezzar used that time as wisely as he could. To tell people far and wide about the God that he discovered to be real. Did you notice that all of this chapter comes from the mouth of the king? Daniel 4 is Nebuchadnezzar's personal testimony. He's telling his story. It's an act of praise. He's he's proclaiming God's greatness to his subjects. He's discovered a new pleasure in serving the Most High rather than just serving himself. What is it that we're to take away from this chapter for our lives today? Well, of course, first and foremost, it's that God reigns. He truly reigns. And those who walk in pride will be humbled, but those of low estate who look up to him for help 
will be raised. So we're to submit to God. And if you think about it, we have even better reason to do that than Nebuchadnezzar did. Because we know more about the King of Kings. We've seen the power of Jesus on earth and his death on the cross. We know we are safe in this King's hands of might and love. So if you're here today and you know you've been ignoring God or fighting against his will for your life, the space is still there for repentance. Let's turn to him today. Let's humble ourselves and offer our worship because God longs to forgive. He loves us and wants to build us back up. But beyond that, as we go out into this next week and no doubt hammered by more bewildering news on the telly, let's remember that all human powers come and go. We're not to be too impressed by them. They're just interim appointments before Christ returns to take his rightful throne. So rather, we're to pray for those in power. We're to pray for Rishi Sunak and Nicola Sturgeon. We're to pray for the UN and for NATO. We're to pray that God will give them guidance and wisdom. We're even to pray for the likes of Putin, that he might repent and turn to God before it's too late. Let's pray that even the tyrants of our world come to say the words that Nebuchadnezzar finished this chapter with. I praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble.